0: Inconvenient, adjective, causing trouble, difficulties, or discomfort. Truth, noun, the quality or state of being true. When something causes us trouble, gives us difficulty, or produces discomfort, we avoid it. But what happens when we can't? What happens when those things come from our relationship with God? What happens when those things that are so inconvenient are also unavoidably true? This summer, we take a look at truths that we'd rather avoid. Truths about human dignity, sexuality, relationships, our work, and our money. This summer, we explore inconvenient truths. All right, kids ages 3 to kindergarten can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship if they'd like. The rest of you, uh, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's in your order of worship. There will be parts of it projected behind me, and, and uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take one. We've got six or seven of them on the back table. There will always be about that many on the back table, so grab one, because that's for you. Uh, we've been taking this summer to talk about inconvenient truths. Uh, inconvenient truths. Those things that the Bible teaches, we wish it didn't. And we, we began talking about this several weeks ago by talking about humanity, that humanity was made in God's image. Uh, and, and the, the fact that, that humanity is made is in God's image uh, then went to the case that every human from the point of conception on um, has dignity and value and worth no matter their age, their ability, or their means. Right. remember that? And then uh, for the next two weeks we talked about gender. The fact that gender is not some societal construct, this idea that we came up with. But it's also not necessarily associated with certain functions so much as how we uniquely and equally image God as men and women. And then last week, we continued to tease out that theme of being made in the image of God, which may be the most inconvenient truth of all, uh, to, to talk about work, the fact that we image a God who works. Uh, and that because of that, uh, we are designed to work, and our work, therefore, has, has worth, has value. This week, we talk about the place of our work. So we're another week talking about work, but, but this week talking about its place. Given the fact that we were made for it... Uh, the fact that, that we were designed to work, what role should it play in our lives? We, we defined work last week as the, as the loving use of creative energy to serve others, which you are uniquely created to do. If that is the case, if it is the loving use of creative, of creative energy uh, to serve others... What role should it play in our lives? That's the question we take to the text this week. So, we're going to be in Ephesians 6 this morning. If you have your place there, go ahead and stand. I'm going to be reading verses 5 uh, through verse 9. This is God's Word. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, there's not a person in this room who hasn't come needy because You've made us to need You. You've designed us for Yourself. And so, Lord, we ask that during this time You would speak to us by Your Spirit. You would come, Holy Spirit, open our hearts enliven our minds and be with us, in us, and working through us. Speak. Your servants are listening. Jesus, as we raise you up, we pray that you would draw all people to yourself as you, as you promised you would. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. In September of 2009, Michael Jeffrey Jordan was inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. And his speech in that induction has become rather infamous because it is about the direct opposite of what you normally hear in Hall of Fame speeches. Hall of Fame speeches normally involve people giving praise to the, all the people that helped them and brought them to make them who they are—their teammates and their coaches—and and you all. I've, without you, I couldn't have done it. Not so much what you heard out of Michael, the man who, uh, until recently and depending on your perspective, still, perhaps, but at least until recently was the undisputed greatest basketball player of all time, took the 23 minutes and 23 seconds, I don't know how he arranged that, those of you who know his number was 23, 23 minutes and 23 seconds to remind everyone of how great he was. This dude paid to fly out a guy to sit in the audience who, notorious at this point, was selected for the high school basketball team in place of him. He brought him out there to sit in the crowd to observe his greatness, to make a point. He thanked Isaiah Thomas, Magic Johnson, and others, not for pushing him to be better, but for slighting him so that he could prove them wrong. Jordan's achievements were everything, and they defined him. The man who had achieved the pinnacle, the best basketball player of all time, seemed driven still to remind everyone that he was the best. In an article on the occasion of his fiftieth birthday, uh, Wright Thompson uh, wrote this, and it was tied to a, to an interview. He wrote this: "His it's Michael. His self esteem has always been, as he says, quote, tied directly to the game, unquote." Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? For the past ten years, since retiring for the third time, he has been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions, distance. Quote, it's consumed me so much, he says. I'm my own worst enemy. I drove myself so much that I'm still living with some of those drives. I'm living with that. I don't know how to get rid of it. I don't know if I could. And here I am, still connected to the game. Unquote. For many of us, we look to what he has achieved. Granted, and maybe it's not in basketball, right? There's like two people in this room who actually can play well enough to even think that way. But like, it's not with basketball, but in just in life. And we look to what he's achieved and we think if we can only just be like Mike. And yet here's a man, more than a decade now, removed from what made him famous and he is still controlled by it. Not two weeks ago, quoted saying that he, still, he thinks he could beat the team that he is the president of at basketball, one-on-one, every player, at 50. What should be the place of work in our lives? What should be the place of that thing that we wake up and do daily? Granted, from what we said last week, that we were made to work, but is work what we were made for? So we're looking at this in three ways this morning. We're going to look at two roles, one boss. We're going to look at uh, two roles, one purpose. And then finally, two roles, one motivation. And so those three points are listed in Outline Your Bulletin, if that's helpful to you. But if not, leave it. Let's get started. So this passage in Ephesians 6 is what's called household codes. Uh, Paul has them in several places. They are not unique to Paul. Uh, Ancient writers wrote a lot of these, these little codes of conduct for every kind of person or, or group kind of classification of people within the home. They were common. But there are some significant differences between what was normal and what Paul was writing. We're going to mention those along the way. But first thing we do, before we even get to that, before we even get to the text itself, is deal with the issue that jumps out at us given what we read and that's slavery, right? Now, the ESV tries to Soften it. You may have noticed in the in the translation. I didn't read what what the ESV says, but this ESV likes to say bond servants. Why? Because that doesn't bring the thoughts to Americans' minds or to Western Europeans' minds the way that slave does. But the word is slave. Oftentimes, Christianity is criticized because of an apparent lack of our own criticism to certain social institutions. This is one of them. Uh, but before we kind of get too far into that, we need to we need to understand. Uh, what first century Greco-Roman slavery was about. Okay, Because all we think about when we hear slavery is the African slave trade in the Western world in like the 17th to, to 19th centuries. Uh, but that's not exactly what this was. So let me explain some of the differences. Uh, slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not racially based, nor was it due to kidnapping. Okay, M- The majority of people who were in uh, slavery were there either because they were defeated soldiers of an army that was conquered, or they sold themselves into slavery. An indentured servitude. Pay off a debt. To advance in life. Something like that. And it sounds weird to us. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, the second difference was that slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not lifelong. Most slaves could legitimately anticipate if they, if they became a slave in their 20s, which was normal, that they would be emancipated by age 30, and once they were emancipated, be Roman citizens which was like a huge deal in the Roman world. Uh, Often, slaves had better educations than their masters and were, during the course of their slavery, not only encouraged to, but enabled to, by their masters, to get educations. Why? Because it behooved the person they are working for to have an educated uh, workforce, right? Uh, And uh, I mentioned a second ago that that uh, slaves would, would actually use their slavery to advance in the world. And that seems weird to us. How could you do that? Well, there was no sense of in the Roman world of upward mobility, right? We have this kind of middle class ethic or middle class dream that you can actually, if you work hard enough and try hard enough and do your, do your school work and da-da-da, that you can advance. And some of that is true, that wasn't the case in the Roman world. In the Roman world, uh, you were pretty much fixed in your little bracket, but slavery, interestingly enough, was one way to expand beyond that. Because you could go into slavery, you could sell yourself into slavery to, to a, a wealthy person, a politician, someone of that nature in the Roman world, get an education, become well-trusted, and then have, your, have the door open to you in a different social category than you had before. So it was often used for that. Finally, slaves in the ancient world had rights. Slaves actually had legal recourse against their masters. So, Greco Roman slavery was very different from what we normally think of when we think of slavery. However, it was still slavery. And so, New Testament scholars will tell you that though we have no evidence of Paul or the early church in general vocally opposing owning of slaves, because we don't. And what I say is we have no evidence of it. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means we don't have evidence of it. We don't have written evidence of it. What what Paul does say about how to behave as a slave or a master actually undercuts the institution. What I mean is this. He gave, he gave uh, thoughts, commands, there's an entire book, The Letter to Philemon, short, but it still counts, uh, as, a, as a book of the Bible, and it's an entire book written to a slave owner about a slave, both of whom are Christians, of whom Paul is then asking the owner to, um, to release the, the slave Onesimus. The things that Paul says about slavery, two slaves, two masters, in the New Testament actually undercuts the institution. Um, The New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says in his wonderful book on Paul, it's called Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free, he says that Paul's words about slavery create the environment in which the institution could only wither and die. There was no other point, there was no other possibility, and that is what happened. Now we're going to see some of that as we continue. Okay, So that's slavery. Hopefully that kind of helps you understand the context into which we're speaking. Now let's look at how Paul talks to slaves and who their true, true master is. Look down at verses 5 to 7. Three times in these three verses, Paul uses the words, as to the Lord, as to Christ, as serving Christ, as to the Lord. Right Now we can think that this is saying, work as if you were working for the Lord. You were working for Jesus. That's because of the ambiguity in our language. In the original, though, it's very clear that what Paul means is that when you work, slaves, you're actually serving not your earthly master, your Lord according to the flesh, literally in the original, but you are serving Jesus. You are serving the Lord. And here's why that's a big deal. Some of you remember, you were here last week, you remember that Greco-Roman understanding of of, uh, manual labor? Right, that manual labor is something that is beneath the truly human. That that's the that's the, the the place for the gods don't don't care about manual labor. They don't like it. They stay as distant from it. If you want to be the the best possible person you can be, you're going to want to create distance between you and creation. That was the Greco-Roman worldview. Literally, uh, Aristotle the ancient philosopher once said that there were some people who were born to be slaves. And what he meant by that is that there were some who were just not cut out for the life of contemplation that is for the truly human. There are some that are made to serve those who do that. right? But here, Paul is saying, slaves, your work is for the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying that the basic, everyday, manual, and menial labor that these slaves did is for the Lord. And so, Paul, what Paul is doing is he's effectively removing what you and I tend to call the secular-sacred dichotomy. That there's some work that is for the Lord, and there's other things that's not. There's there's uh, Jesus' work, and then there's work that's not. There's work that's God-oriented and work that's not. He's saying, no, no, no. All work is for the Lord. Your work, even the most menial of tasks, of which slaves had many, is done not for the earthly master, but for the Lord, for Christ. And this means that all work is a calling from God. That, the, word, the word that we use, vocation, right, that comes from the Latin word, vocare, which means to call. And the, 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 um, the dignity and value and worth of a job that is done is always directly associated with the one who is calling you to do it. And so Paul is saying, the one that's calling you to do your labor is the Lord, the God of all reality. It is a it is a calling, a vocation, a vocare from God. But it doesn't stop there. He doesn't just talk to slaves. He looks at masters too. Paul says in the latter part of that verse. Knowing that that of verse nine, he says, Knowing that their Lord and your Lord is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Did you catch what he's saying there? Paul is looking to these masters, these these slave owners, and he's saying to them, you guys and your slaves are both slaves. And you have the same Lord. You're both under the same Lord. That, that word Lord that he uses there in, in verse 5 when it says earthly masters or masters according. It, it's, he says uh, Lord according to the flesh. It's the same word. He's making a staggering claim in the ancient world. He is saying that masters are slaves as well. Okay? And what, what he is saying is that both masters and slaves who are Christians are slaves of Christ. They are equally slaves. And here's what that does. First off, it undercuts any sense of inferiority on the part of the slave. Oh, well, he's the master. I'm not as good. I, no, no, no. Paul says, no, 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 you're, you're the same. But it also undercuts any sense of superiority from the masters. Well, those slaves are below me. They're beneath me. They are, they are who they are, but I am, I am made to rule. No, no, no. He says, you're both the same. In our world, it would remove the sense of superiority that comes from being management and the sense of inferiority that can come from being labor. Right? Both have the same Lord and both are accountable to Him. In fact, Paul is clear that being in one position or another doesn't make God more favorable to you. In the ancient world, that would have been very uh, important for the masters to hear. He's no better, he's no more worthy, he's no more valuable because both he and his slaves are both slaves of the same master. Now, this is revolutionary, so listen close if you can. If Paul is telling both slaves and masters, both management and labor, both white collar and blue collar, that they work for the same Lord, then Paul is saying that all work, all work, not just some, but all work is a calling from God. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul said it this way. Whatever you do, work hard as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do. And there were some in that in the congregation that would have heard this for the first time who were in city government, and there were others who were just your run-of-the-mill slaves. Paul is saying everything you do is for the Lord. And this is one of those texts that drove the, the Protestant reformers to push against the Roman Catholic notion that holy orders are the vocation that God cares about in holy orders in our context we talk about church work right church work mission work that those are what God cares about no all of our labor is done for the Lord there is no sacred secular distinction in the workplace because all of our work is for the Lord and not for men so what what I want to do in this next section is I want to draw two implications from this as we look at two roles and one purpose okay Two implications from the fact that all of that work is for the Lord. First, working to flourish. Look down at verse 6 again. Paul says, Don't work by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Now, we're going to get to the eye service and people pleasing bit in a second. But it's that second part that I want to deal with here. If you don't really work for your boss, but instead you work for the Lord, how is it that you are to do your work? Perhaps better, what should your goal be? Right? Most of us think that our goal is to make our bosses happy, right? So if, if our boss isn't really our boss, but the Lord's our boss, what do we, how do we make them happy? I know how I make my boss happy. I make my quotas and I fill my timesheet out and I don't mess up, and you know, I, I, how do I make the Lord happy? Well Paul tells us here, he says it's to do the will of God from the heart, or from the center of your being. OK? That's clear, right? Yeah, OK. Not exactly. Here, here's what he's talking about. You see, in the story of the Bible, God has created all of things out of an act of love. Like He, he wasn't forced to create anything. There was nothing that compelled him to create things. He created purely out of an act of love to bring other beings into his, his triune loving relationship. And he created humanity to be the pinnacle of creation, to rule and to steward it, which does not mean to, to uh, control and exploit so much as to cultivate an order, to see it... You know, the, the word we use around here a lot is to see it flourish that was why humans were created in the first place to help creation flourish because things, things needed to be ordered it needed to, that con- creative work of God needed to continue and it, he continues it through us and our work is still meant to do that but you remember what we said last week that our normal posture in regards to our work is that our work is for us it's for us right? we work to get something Whether that something is the satisfaction that we get from the stuff, you know, the money, the other toys we can get, or whether it's security, like I'm safe because I have a job, or whether it's a status. We try and get something from our work. But the Bible tells us that we have that posture because of sin. (laughs) Because of sin. That we are stuck seeking those things from our work because we were alienated from the one that we were supposed to get them from. That would be God. That kind of satisfaction, the security, the status, that's supposed to come from God. But because we're alienated from Him, we're bent away from Him now, we, we try and seek it from other things, including work. Our work was meant to see others flourish. But instead, all we do is look out for number one. Now, the amazing thing that Paul says in this passage is found in verse 9, right? Right? We, we know that in verse, that he's talking to slaves and he says, Do the will of God from the heart. Work to see others flourish. And we can almost imagine him going, Slaves, work hard. Make sure your masters are happy. And they're like, Okay, yeah, yeah. And then he turns to verse 9 and says, Masters, do the same to them. See, I said at the beginning there are a couple of major differences between the household codes you would see in the ancient world and the ones that Paul writes. One of the first ones in Paul's writings is that he addresses slaves in the first place. In the ancient world, you wouldn't address the slaves, why would you? You don't need to address the slaves, you address the masters. They'll keep everything the way it needs to go. But Paul addresses the slaves, he gives them dignity. And then here is another big difference. He actually tells masters to do what he just said for the slaves to do. Paul tells the masters to do the same thing that he just told the slaves to do. For their slaves. You see how that works? He just told the slaves, work for the flourishing of others. Okay, that makes sense. And he tells masters, and you guys, work for their flourishing. You masters go see your slaves flourish. Do you, do you see what F.F. F. Bruce is talking about? How that undercuts the entire institution? How can a slave eventually, or a master eventually, work for the flourishing of his slave until one day he wakes up and goes, I don't know how he can flourish and still, I, can, I can't own him for him to flourish. How is this going to work? It's not. That's the whole point. This entire thing would have been outrageous Paul is telling slaves, work for the flourishing of those you work for, to do the will of God from the heart. And then he's telling masters, masters, seek the flourishing of your slaves from the heart. So the Christian doctrine of work says that our work is not for us. We work for the sake of others, whether that is filing a brief, or or patrolling a street, or making a meal, or building a house, or selling a product. Let me bring it down to something even, even more mundane. Do you realize that if no one ever wipes down your kitchen counter, eventually you're going to get sick from contaminated food. If you don't believe me, ask Josh DiGennaro. He's not here right now, but if he were. like That's, that's the, the world that he lives in. If nobody wipes that down, eventually you will get sick. All work is for the flourishing of others. Our work is to see others flourish no matter our position, whether we are management or labor. But the second purpose, the second implication is found there as well. Okay, Now, let's get to that eye service and people pleasing thing. I think most of us know what that's talking about, right? Working for eye service, working to please people. Well, let me give you an example, though. When I was in high school, um, after school I worked... Uh, from the time that I was 16 until I graduated high school, I worked at the Burger King outside of Manassas Mall. Right? It's right in front of Manassas Mall. The building's changed, but it's still there. And I was rather unique in that. There were only uh, like two, two kids uh, my age, like high school kids on this one track that were there. The rest of the folks who worked there were what we called lifers. They were lifers. Uh, the definition of that should be obvious. They were folks who were going to be, you know, they, they wanted to be there for life or didn't want to be, but that's all they thought they were going to do. One of the guys that I worked with had actually been there since that store had opened, uh, which was like 15 or 20 years before I started working there. He was really good at what he did. Phenomenal, in fact. But he only did it when the manager was looking. The other times he didn't, and, what he, and in fact, he would, he would get on us for trying to do work while the manager wasn't around. Because you see, if you do that, you're raising expectations. and makes it really hard for him. Because he's going to be there long after we're gone. And so we understand how that works. Some of us here work along the same way. We work hard so long as the eye of the one who matters is on us. But as soon as that changes, we don't. But here Paul reorients us. Because our work is to be understood as being done before the face of God. Not before the face of your manager. Not before the face of your supervisor. Your boss. Your shareholders. Your stockholders. Your constituency. Your, uh, your constituency. Your work is before the face of God. And God is always watching. See, if God is your boss, the one that you are accountable to, and He is always watching, then there is no time that He isn't there. And then... Paul goes on to talk about the rewards, right? The, the talk of God's reward, both to slave and masters. And this connects back to the word, word, if you remember back to last week, we talked about Genesis 2 and the fact that God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. And that word work is a religious word. The rest of the Old Testament uses it to talk about the work that priests do in the temple. And, and so the, the implication of that is that Paul, or that Adam's basic work is, is religious. All of our work is meant to be worship. You see, worship is what we do here, right? This is corporate worship. It's a special time where we all gather together to worship the Lord. But Paul says, in another place, he says, uh, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. In other words, everything you do, whether you're eating, drinking, working, running, exercising, managing your kids, disciplining your kids, uh, you know, having a bat, do it all for the glory of God. All of life is meant to be offered back to God. Our work is offered back to Him. It is for Him. It isn't the boss's reward we are working for, but God's. It is His pleasure that we are seeking, or should be. So then the purpose of our work, like the purpose of the Christian life in general, is that our work is for the sake of God and for others. It isn't about us. Now, there should be some big questions popping up as we move into the motivation. I mean, how can we do such a thing? I mean, how do, you, how do you reorient your life to go, okay, the work that I do is for others when everything that is in you and everything that you've ever heard has been about how it's for you? Well, here's the principle. Let me give you the principle and then we'll tease out two implications of the principle. Okay, Here's the principle. You'll never be free to give yourself fully in your work until you believe that there is nothing you need to get from your work. Let me say that again. You'll never be free to give yourself fully in your work until you believe that there is nothing you need to get from your work. Let me explain that. Because you see, some of us use our work to get satisfaction. We talked about that a little last week. I use my work to get money or stuff. And we do that because we struggle with a hunger that we can't seem to fill. How do I satisfy it? And because of this, what we'll often do, because we see work as the means to get to the end of our satisfaction, we'll do only the bare minimum. What do I need to do to get my paycheck? What do I need to do? What kind of things can I get away with to get what I need to get done so that I can get my satisfaction? The Gospel, though, frees us to work because it tells us That this hunger that you and I feel, and we all feel it, that it isn't for stuff. It isn't for money. It isn't for security. And so security, money, and stuff can't fill it. That hole, that hunger is for God. That we were made for Him. But now we are bent by nature towards independence from God. That sin isn't just what we do. That it's now who we are. We are betrayers of God by nature and so we are alienated from the God that we were made to be in relationship with. We are were, we were alienated from the one who is meant to fill us in that way. So that hole is gaping, it's open, it's wide. And we, when we feel that hunger, that need for satisfaction. We are hungering for God. And that is why money or freedom or leisure or whatever can never fill it. It's never enough. It's why when you get back from vacation, you're like, I need a vacation from my vacation before I get back to work. Right? I can't fill it. But the Gospel also tells us that Jesus came to reconcile us to God, to restore us to the one that we hunger for. When we place our faith in Him, we are brought back into relationship with God, that our sin is paid for by His death and we are made sons and daughters of God. And here's the key to all of that. The Gospel frees us to work, to work, not to give eye service, not to be people pleasers, because on the one hand it says that the one that we work for, is the one who has freely given everything for us so we can freely offer back all that we have. But on the other hand, it frees us to seek the flourishing of others through our work, through that single-hearted devotion that Paul talks about. Because we have been flourishing Christ and we no longer have to look out for ourselves. Our work isn't, it doesn't need to be for us anymore because we've already been filled somewhere else. So we've been freed to work at the same time the gospel frees us from our work you see some of us in this room some of us do work for satisfaction right we're just living for the paycheck we're living to get to vacation we're living for the weekend others of us though you know that that's probably more prevalent in in more of the the blue collar end of the spectrum more towards the white collar end of the spectrum we don't work to get satisfaction we're working to get a status See, most folks in white-collar jobs, they're not eye service folks. They're not people-pleaser folks, at least not for that reason. Their problem isn't that they underwork, which is what can happen if you're just trying to get a paycheck. You just do a bare minimum. You underwork. Their their problem isn't underwork, it's overwork. Because work is giving them a status, and so they serve it relentlessly. Maybe for you it's the status of, of success. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's prestige. Whatever it is. We want a status because we know we need one. We know that we need one. But here's the thing, and you know this, you know this intuitively. So long as you think that you have to work to get a status, so long as you, 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 you seek to get that status from your work, you know, you know that you're never sure if you've gotten it. How much is enough? How many pay raises? How many promotions? I mean, maybe you're a big fish in this little pond, but... Maybe, maybe it's not enough. Maybe I need to go be a, be a bigger fish in a bigger pond. Like, how do you know it's enough? And and the other side of it is, you know that if you worked hard to get that status, what happens if you begin to slack off? You lose it, and it's gone. The gospel frees us from the overwork this can create. The gospel frees us from a slavery to our work by telling us that the status we need is a status that our work could never give us. You see, you and I know that we're broken. We know that there's something wrong with us. We don't like to admit it, but it is true. We want to make that up, right? We want to make it better so we work hard. Like, I, I, can, I can make things work. I can make it better. Uh, we think that if we can just get enough power or, or success or prestige or respect... That we can justify ourselves. I can prove maybe there's no longer anything wrong with us. But we can't. And the gospel says to us, yes, you are broken. Way more than you think. You are jacked up beyond all belief. And so am I. It tells us this because we are independent from God. And so, because of that, all of our attempts to make it better on our own, by ourselves, are just making the problem worse. But it also says that Jesus came to achieve the status that we need in our place. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't. And then He died to bear our sins. And He died to take our status from us. And so when we place our faith in Him, when we place our faith in Him, He takes our status and He gives us His. You hear that? It's not like God just kind of wipes your slate clean. He takes every every independent thing you've done, whether it's wicked or very moral, and he takes them and he places them on Jesus and he gives you Jesus' perfect life. You get Christ's status before God. Did you hear that? How does your promotion line up with that? It doesn't. But here's the real kicker. Because it's not something you ever worked for, because you didn't work really hard to make God like you enough to give you that status but Jesus just freely offers it to you because you didn't slave away and work hard to get it that means that your lack of activity won't lose it because you didn't do anything to get it you can't do anything to lose it that is how the gospel frees us from work Friends, so long as you stay away from Jesus, you will always seek to get your status from something. And that something will own you. But if you receive the gift of Jesus' status, receive His perfect life and sin-bearing death on your behalf, then you don't need to get anything from your work. And this is what the Michael Jordans of the world, among us even, need. See, your failures or successes at work no longer need to define you or control you because you are defined by Jesus. And so come to Him. Let work return to where it was meant to be, lined up as worship to God and service to others because everything you are using work to get for you has been provided through the glorious, perfect, and finished work of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we in this room struggle. Uh, I don't really care what our job is. Every one of us struggles to keep our work in line with you the way it needs to. Some of us overwork. We are looking for our work and our failures and successes in it to define us. Others of us we underwork because we just wanna we just wanna get ours. And so we will do the only what we need to do to get it. We'll cut corners if we need to. We'll slack off when people aren't looking Lord, we, we need to be free to find those things that we're searching for our work to give us in You. And so because of that, be freed to labor with all that You have given us, every gift that You have given us, like the, the, the parable of talents, to give back all that You have given us to see others flourish and You worship. And so Lord, we ask for that grace today that You would form us into a congregation, men and women and children, who work, whether it's in school or, or in uh, vocations outside of the home, vocations in the home, that you would, you would work in us by your Spirit that all that we do will be offered back to you as worship and offered without hesitancy to others so that they might flourish. Give us grace to do that, Lord, because that is not our natural bent. We need you, we need, you, we need the Spirit to apply the work of Jesus to us. And we need to believe the Gospel again in that way. So we ask that you would do this so that you might receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.